and welcome to this episode of the Trade Knowledge Matters podcast, our regular podcast in which we look at all things connected to trade policy. And today we will look again at the interplay between trade and climate policies. Now we're around halfway between two important events. Uh, COP28 was held in Dubai in December and the 13th WTO Ministerial Conference will be held next month in Abu Dhabi. Now, COP28 notably included a dedicated day on trade and climate for the first time in the history of that conference. And this uh, served to highlight the important interactions and at times tensions between trade and climate policies. Now, there are a number of ways in which we can consider that interaction uh, and the outcomes from COP28 and the road ahead to the 13th Ministerial Conference. Today, what, what we'd like to do is to look at these questions from the particular perspective of sub-Saharan African economies. And so to do that, I'm privileged to welcome two eminent experts to this podcast. First of all, David Luke, who is a professor in practice and strategic director at the Feroz Lalji Institute for Africa at the London School of Economics. He specializes in African trade policy and trade negotiations. Professor Luke has decades of experience in policy advisory services and managing and catalyzing research and building partnerships, training and capacity development for the private sector and government. He previously held senior positions in the African Union, uh, the United Nations Development Programme and the Economic Commission for Africa. I'm also pleased to welcome Colette van der Ven, who is a renowned international lawyer with an expertise in trade and sustainable development. Uh, she's the founder and director of Tulip, a Geneva-based consulting firm, and in this capacity, Colette advises governments and international organizations on how to leverage legal and regulatory frameworks to promote inclusive and green development. Uh, previously, Colette founded and served as the director for Sidley Austin's Pro Bono program, the Trade for Development Initiative. And while at Sidley, she also represented governments in international disputes before panels and the Apple body at the World Trade Organization. So welcome to this podcast, David and Colette. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I might start with you, David. Um, COP28 showed some degree of progress on addressing climate change. There was a reference notably to transitioning away from fossil fuels and an agreement to op operationalize the loss and damage fund that was established at COP27. But there was also a substantial amount of disappointment globally and particularly in developing countries at the lack of progress elsewhere, uh, particularly in relation to low carbon transitions in, in developing countries and on adaptation and the continuing deadlock on what we call Article 6 matters relating to carbon trading. From your perspective, what are the main outstanding issues that needed need to be addressed as a matter of priority for sub-Saharan African economies. Well, thank you, Amar, and uh, thanks for inviting me to be part of this uh, discussion. I'm truly delighted uh, to, be, to be here. Um, well, as you mentioned, uh, I think uh, issues around adaptation are very important for African economies, and um, that has been highlighted in the um, African document that was um, uh, taken to the uh, to, to the COP that was presented to the COP under the uh, coordination of Zambia that acted as um, 
the spokesperson for the African countries. So adaptation and, and funding for adaptation is certainly very important for the African countries. But then also, as you highlighted, uh, the issues around carbon trading, um, I think there's disappointment that um, uh, there wasn't much in, in that. And uh, this is a very important uh, issue for African countries um, for, a, for a number of reasons. Um, first, let me um, uh, point out that um, uh, Africa, actually, uh, this is something that may not be very well known, but Africa houses um, the, the Congo Basin, um, which um, is a carbon sink that stores up to uh, 30 billion. But Africa accounts for only about 11% of um, uh, the world's uh, recorded uh, carbon uh, offsets and about 2% of uh, global uh, carbon market uh, trading. And of that 2%, uh, only three, three countries account for um, uh, about 1.4%, uh, and that's uh, South Africa, Morocco, and uh, Egypt, and we're only about 0.6% um, uh, for the rest of the uh, uh, continent. Also, as you know, the um, uh, IPCC uh, does um, recommend a carbon uh, price of 100 uh, dollars uh, per ton to uh, maintain a safe global warming uh, limit of about uh, 1.5 uh, degrees uh, centigrade. Yet um, Africa's uh, uh, credits fetch as little as uh, $10 uh, a ton, you know, which, you know, uh, compared to um, uh, prices uh, uh, elsewhere. So I think a number of us are beginning to think that um, uh, the Africans, uh, as these uh, Article 6 uh, discussions uh, proceed, that Africa needs to uh, perhaps um, take a much more coordinated approach uh, to this. Uh, there's been some talk of uh, a kind of a carbon registry that might be linked uh, to the AFCFTA Secretariat or managed by the uh, AFCFTA Secretariat that would help the African countries to centralize um, uh, control over their um, carbon credit uh, supply. But this is a very important uh, source of um, financing for African countries um, in for this uh, climate uh, transition and given all the problems that we know about financing. On the side of the um, UNFCC, uh, these Article uh, 6 discussions need to uh, certainly proceed. And we hope with urgency um, leading up to COP29, but then on the side of the African Countries, I think um, they also need to get act together um, in a much more coordinated way to be really able to benefit uh, from the possibilities that are out there. Let me stop here. Thank you, David. Uh, Colette, is there anything you'd like to add to, to what David uh, just said? Uh, thank you very much, Amar, and great to uh, to listen to David's insight with regards to this question, and in particular the uh, the observations with regards to Article Six. Uh, I think that's indeed a very important issue for the African continent. And perhaps just to highlight, um, one of the uh, the foremost priorities of African leaders uh, in COP28 uh, really was climate finance. Um, and while um, the parties had made notable outcomes, including the establishment of the Loss and Damage Fund. And the global goal and adaptation, these initiatives remain wholly insufficient in light of the climate financing that is required by the African continent within the next couple of uh, uh, years and decades. So, um, for example, um, with regards to loss and damage, so the parties agreed to set up the loss and damage fund and with pledges of 792 million in total. Um, however, 
Africa alone will require between 290 billion and 440 billion dollars uh, between 2020 and 2030 to finance loss and damage needs. So what has been pledged and what is required uh, really doesn't align. Likewise, with regards to climate adaptation, countries in uh, especially sub-Saharan Africa are amongst the most vulnerable to climate change uh, and therefore climate adaptation is at the heart of Africa's climate action agenda uh, and a key priority in the region. Now, the global goal on adaptation that was set up in COP28 is a step in the right direction, but again does not go far enough um, because it reflects low levels of ambition, a lack of decision on means of implementing it, as well as no additional strong commitments on financing. Uh, and here, a, um, a report by the United Nations Environmental Programme has um, found that there is, in fact, a shortfall of financing for adaptation of between 194 to $366 billion annually. Um, so again, that must be addressed. And at the COP28, that need was not uh, met. Some other outstanding issues. Um, one is that the, um, the African group is interested in finding ways to establish parameters for a global carbon framework. Um, and that too did not get the attention that uh, the African countries uh, sought. And then the advancement of the just transition uh, also reached many compromises that no longer uh, made it uh, as strong as uh, the African countries uh, wanted it to be in their negotiating position. Okay, thank you for that, uh, Colette. And that um, adds to, to what David um, also observed. Um, just, I might stay with you, Colette, and... Um, COP28 was the first uh, COP to host a trade day. What, in your view, are the key trade and climate interactions from the perspective of African economies to come out of that trade day? So uh, basically, I'm maybe just going to take a step back here generally on, you know, key interactions between uh, trade and climate from the perspective of the African economies. Um, and what's what's really interesting here is that a large part of the story on trade and climate for Africa has been one of uh, essentially concern um, with a focus on uh, mostly what the development implications are of uh, unilateral uh, trade and environmental measures that are uh, pursued by many developed countries today. Um, so, for example, um, uh, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, uh, which seeks to levy a tax on embedded carbon uh, in certain products or the Deforestation Free Products Regulation, those are two EU regulations that uh, have been uh, receiving a lot of criticisms uh, from different developing countries, but including the Africans, um, with regards to how uh, that could negatively impact their development uh, as well as their trade with, in this regard, the EU. And that has also been at the forefront of uh, some of the uh, trade day considerations that were discussed. And here, uh, basically, the emphasis from the African group is to make sure that when trade and environment come together and are being discussed uh, hand in hand, not to overlook the development uh, dimension. Um, and oftentimes we see that either the discussion is trade and environment or development and trade, but not necessarily trade and environment and development. And so at the COP as well, a lot of the emphasis was on trade and environment. Um, but the push here on behalf of the Africans uh, and the African governments was to make sure that development considerations were part and parcel of 
uh, these discussions um, and were not uh, relegated to uh, to a second, basically to an afterthought. Thank you. Um, David, do you have anything to add to that, particularly the, the trade development and environment nexus that uh, Colette no, I, I identified? Think it's, uh, it's, um, I, I think it's a very important point that Colette is making. It's certainly very important. It's um, uh, key. Um, you know, that development should be at the heart of the way we think about trade and and um, and, and, and the environment. Uh, so I, you know, sort of fully agree to that. Great. Um, now, getting back to an earlier observation you made there, David, you, you talked about some of the missed opportunities that lay in, notably in the unexploited abatement options that uh, the African continent can present. You talked about the, the Congo Basin, for example, and that ties in sort of with this idea that uh, you can mobilize uh, financing flows through the sale of those abatement options. And there's also the talk of climate financing more generally. Uh, to help low carbon transitions and adaptations in African economies. And Colette also identified that the need uh, for large scale financing mobilization uh, for African economies. Now, one of the concerns is that if you have financial flows of that magnitude, that can be particularly significant macroeconomic effects, notably uh, real exchange rate appreciations that create what we call Dutch disease, which we've seen in the case of commodity or natural resource booms in African economies in the past. And that has some further undesirable uh, implications, notably on uh, exports of manufacturers uh, and other sorts of sectors into which African economies might conflict then between some of these large-scale financial inflows and other trade and development objectives. How could some of these tensions be handled, in your view? Very interesting uh, question, Amar. Uh, firstly, um, I hope you forgive me for saying that. Let's see the flows come in first, <laughs> and then worry, <laughs> and then worry about the problem. Because <laughs> as um, Colette said, the, the sums we're talking about as you know quite staggering. Uh, but there is no uh, sense that um, these are forthcoming. But yes, indeed, um, voluntary carbon markets I think um, do offer a much more realistic uh, prospect. Um, yeah, Dutch disease is an uh, inherent problem um, where you have um, uh, a, a currency that's not um, uh, widely traded and it's not a reserve uh, currency. I once had an African economy say to me that um, uh, the, uh, this problem that uh, many developing countries face um, is unfair. And um, uh, fully agree to that, that is unfair, but that's the, uh, the, the reality. And, you know, I mean, I, I think what all successful development experiences have shown is that exchange rate needs to be carefully uh, managed to um, avoid uh, the Dutch disease, uh, lack of competitiveness uh, across the sector, having enclaves um, uh, that uh, benefit from rents and, and so on. And I think that the tools for doing that now are, are sort of better known. I think um, central banks are becoming much more adept at uh, how to how to do this. Um, uh, so I would hope that um, that aspect of policy making would be given the uh, the the kind of um, priority and uh, certain insights that uh, is is required so that you don't have these um, imbalances um, uh, in 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 the economy as, as as a whole. So I think it's a problem that's manageable, and I, I would want to uh, expect that um, uh, it should not uh, be a deterrent to actually having. Uh, the, the the flow of funds that are needed. Yes, we would definitely hope it wouldn't be a de deterrent. Um, staying with you, David, uh, you, amongst other people, have over the years called for a new trade deal for Africa. 
and probably particularly now relevant in given that the confluence of challenges that that exist uh, particularly in relation to what Colette identified as the trade development environment nexus so what would be the main elements of this new trade deal for Africa in your view uh, yeah, um, you know, firstly, uh, let's take a step back to say that um, uh, Africa accounts for a really very small proportion of um, global world trade flows, about 3% in, in all. And um, Africa is uh, uh, as a proportion of exports to its main uh, trading partners, the EU, China, again, is, is really very small. So um, uh, the first point to make is that um, there's really uh, hardly any systemic risk in um, granting Africa a sort of new trade deal, uh, as you mentioned. And I think there are two elements to this. Firstly, um, there is the effort to um, grow Africa's um, internal trade, that's inter-African uh, trade, uh, at the same time where uh, you do have um, a strong evidence of um, uh, trade uh, diversion uh, occurring. Um, uh, so you know, in order to fix that part of the problem, you do need to give Africa some 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 space, uh, some um, uh, over time uh, to grow its own internal uh, to grow its own in internal trade. And that would be one aspect of the um, of 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 a, of a trade deal. Uh, the other aspect, of course, is that um, uh, trade policy cannot. Um, uh, drive uh, the growth in, in, in trade flows that uh, uh, we'd like to see, uh, certainly not the trade policy alone. That has to be complemented with investment. And, and again, uh, Africa's share of uh, global investments uh, quite small, and um, uh, investment that there is is going into sectors that are not um, really helpful for Africa's uh, development, overwhelmingly concentrated in uh, extractive uh, sectors. Um, so that's the other aspect that um, uh, granting Africa much more space uh, for its own internal integration to, to take off uh, uh, must be complemented with um, investment. This, of course, uh, what we're what saying here is not um, taking Africa out of the global economy, but certainly uh, through investment and through trade with with um, with its uh, partners. Um, uh, to um, be able to insert itself in higher uh, rungs of the uh, of global value value chain, so I think this is um, uh, you know the elements that um, will constitute uh, a, a new trade deal for for the African uh, countries, and um, uh, one has also argued that um, uh, this has to be a, a, a long term. Uh, proposition, um, certainly over 40, 50 years, because it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to see these trade flows um, develop overnight. Um, and I think there are ways of benchmarking Africa's progress in, in, in this regard. But I think the challenge for the rest of the world is that um, uh, we have um, a situation where other countries, uh, you know, that we've seen development and so on, we're not seeing convergence uh, happening in Africa. At the same time, you're seeing a demographic uh, challenge in the growth of, um, and all the projections in the growth of Africa's uh, population, which really is not being adequately addressed. And, and I think that is a, a huge risk for the rest of the world uh, in terms of stability uh, in Africa, even in terms of um, uh, migration uh, out of Africa um, due to these pressures. And on top of this, uh, 
we framed an earlier discussion in regard to the climate challenges as, as well. So I think uh, when you put all these, uh, the confluence of all these factors uh, together, we need to be thinking afresh about um, trade policy, about uh, investment. And I think this is a good time to do it because um, uh, there is rethinking going on uh, about the multilateral trading system as, as a whole. Um, we've seen uh, with the return, as some people call it, the return of um, industrial policy and, and so on. Uh, we've seen um, the measures that have been taking in, in, in the US. We've seen uh, uh, discussions uh, uh, about uh, new flexibilities that uh, uh, the WTO and the multilateral system needs to have in, in order to support the climate transition and so on. So I think it's a good time to um, raise these issues as to how then to re respond to um, the part of the world which is poorest and uh, which is not making um, rapid progress and, and how you can uh, shake off uh, the, um, uh, the these problems that we've had um, in Africa for so long, uh, for now close to 70 years of um, the post-independence uh, period. So um, I'm not trying to suggest that uh, all the elements that I have talked about um, uh, should constitute uh, this new trade deal into account and let's think afresh um, what it is that we could do in trade policy, but just keeping in mind that uh, trade policy alone will not be enough. Um, Thanks, David. And Colette, is there anything you'd like to add, particularly with your legal uh, hat on? Uh, thanks, uh, Amart. I would like to start where David uh, ended, which is trade policy alone is not enough or trade agreements are not enough. Um, and I think that that is a really important sentence um, because actually there are already a number of developments that I know David has studied very closely um, that are happening within the African continent um, that could also be an impetus to creating the additional value added uh, that the African continent is seeking. Um, and this, of course, is uh, the flagship African continental free trade area. Um, there are also uh, the, the RECs, the regional economic communities that are in place, like the East African uh, community or, or COMESA or ECOWAS. Um, but especially uh, these agreements, and especially the AFCFTA, which um, became operationalized in 2021, um, contains many elements that uh, if implemented, really could uh, uh, could could see that uh, additional benefit um, because there's of course um, research again done by David um, that shows that um, uh, intra-African trade flows actually are a lot higher in value added than trade between the African continent and uh, countries outside of Africa. So boosting that intra-African trade could see um, an increase in the kind of uh, products and services that create more value added, um, and that consequently could have uh, more benefits for development, for industrialization, job creation, poverty alleviation, et cetera, uh, which are all the elements that we hope trade would facilitate. Um, now, one problem with uh, the AFCFTA, uh, or one challenge, is the implementation, um, and that is not just limited to the AFCFTA, but it's also something that we've seen uh, in the context of previous intra-African uh, trade agreements. Um, and with regards to the AFCFTA in particular, we are now uh, just starting 2024. So basically, this has um, the, the AFCFTA has been in operation for three years, but the schedules of tariffs are yet to be finalized. The rules of origin. Uh, 
are yet to be fully finalized, um, which means that there isn't actually any trade happening under the more favorable conditions set out in the AFCFTA. So there is urgency there, perhaps in addition to thinking about or rethinking about trade and trade agreements, to really focus on implementing what has been uh, agreed and negotiated so far within the African continent. Um, and I would just add to that also another point about trade or trade policy isn't enough, um, but it could be an impetus, is that um, um, many of the trade agreements uh, to which the African uh, countries are party or subject to, uh, you have a number of unilateral trade agreements, like, for example, AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, um, and now you have some um, um, reciprocal ones that are being negotiated with the European Union. Um, but many of these agreements, too, they aren't enough. They alone will not create the benefits that the African continent seeks, but they could be an impetus. Um, so, um, for instance, on the unilateral side, um, the AGOA framework uh, has uh, or that provides duty-free, quota-free uh, uh, market access to the United States for a subset of products coming from Africa um, that has... Um, that has spurred an increase in investment, specifically in uh, the textile and apparel industry over the last couple of decades. Um, but what you see is very thin industrialization resulting from that investment, because a lot of that investment is coming, uh, it, it's foreign direct investment coming from uh, China, uh, from, from Taiwan, from other countries, um, happening mostly within special economic zones with very limited linkages and establishment of of, of connections to the country itself and skills development, et cetera, uh, that would be required to make those investments more durable and more valuable. So the moment either labor prices go up or the AGOA preference framework is discontinued for one reason or the other, you see this has significant and severe consequences um, for uh, the industrial opportunities that were created as a result of the preferential schemes. So all that to say that the preferential schemes or the bilateral reciprocal trade agreements can create the conditions, an impetus to start building different industrial opportunities, but it's not enough. It needs to be accompanied with very clear industrial policies and very proactive thinking about where the opportunities are and where the challenges may be. And that then must be reflected back also in the uh, reciprocal trade agreement negotiations that the African countries are engaged in. Uh, thank you, uh, Colette, for that uh, those additional insights. Uh, you made earlier on in this podcast uh, a, a point about um, some of the spillover effects of what you call unilateral measures taken by developed countries on um, on African economies in particular. Uh, and I suppose one of the challenges with climate governance is the lack of binding mechanisms for implementing and enforcing commitments on emissions reductions. And that's in a sense, what has spilled over into countries taking climate-related trade measures, either in the form of regulations or price mechanisms, such as the carbon border adjustment measure that um, the EU and now the UK uh, are seeking to implement. What are the specific challenges that these mechanisms uh, pose for African economies? I might start with you, David. Yeah, um, I always um, think in terms of uh, multilateral uh, solutions that could uh, take into account uh, the range of countries, um, different stages of development, and um, what measures uh, could um, respond to where they are at in, in relation to development. Again, this point about ensuring that development is at uh, the heart of trade uh, and uh, climate uh, uh, policies. 
Um, and I think that these um, approaches uh, do not do that. And, and I, I think that that is um, uh, an, a, a problem for um, uh, poorer countries which um, uh, find themselves uh, faced with these uh, measures that they then have to uh, respond to. I think that on, on carbon pricing, on taxation and subsidies, um, these three uh, areas, um, it, it should be possible to uh, uh, come up with uh, multilateral uh, approaches that can, that can um, put in place some disciplines uh, in these uh, areas. Um, and so in the case of the CBAM, uh, as we have as we have seen and uh, some work that we have uh, done on on this, you know clearly there is a downside uh, uh, for the African countries. Uh, uh, one appreciates, of course, uh, what the EU is uh, now the UK uh, are trying to achieve in regard to um, ensuring that uh, the carbon the carbon leakages uh, are disciplined. But um, we do have this downside, the hit that African economies would um, have to face. Uh, uh, so, you know, this brings us back to um, whether these um, unilateral solutions uh, need to be uh, uh, done in a different way that would take into account um, uh, different stages of uh, development, um, different requirements among different uh, countries and, um, and how you can still uh, address uh, problems such as carbon leakages but doing it in, in a way uh, that is um, uh, consistent with... Um, uh, not penalizing uh, countries who otherwise um, would find themselves being penalized. And this, again, is in the broader canopy of um, declining trade shares uh, in the case of uh, uh, the African countries. Uh, so uh, there's that imbalance. And I think this is being recognized. Uh, there is uh, a move towards looking at uh, how to uh, address this uh, issue. The EU has said that... Um, uh, the um, its approach to the CBAM will be uh, reviewed after the transitional uh, period to see um, uh, what adjustments uh, could be made uh, to it. And there are a number of countries that um, are looking at um, making challenges uh, to this. Uh, so let's see how all of this unfolds. But uh, I think the message has gone out uh, clearly that um, there, there's a downside to taking this kind of uh, uh, approach and there could be other approaches uh, that could help us um, uh, deal with um, uh, the, the solution that we we are finding. Thank you, uh, Colette. Would you like to come in on that and the the other solutions and the the ways of addressing some of these downsides of uh, some of these unilateral measures? I think part of the issue or of why we're seeing this trend in unilateral uh, trade measures is a fundamental disconnect between the uh, UNFCCC and what happens in COPs and countries making commitments that are well nationally. German contributions, but that reflect common but differentiated responsibilities. So your ambition for climate and greenhouse gas reductions must reflect where you are in the spectrum vis-a-vis -vis historic uh, emissions, uh, some of the emerging and current emissions, um, and, and a number of other factors, um, which on the one hand creates different levels of ambition. And on the other hand, you see where the trade regime comes in. Um, enormous emphasis on creating a level playing field where the WTO and the trading regime seeks to make sure different countries don't have uh, trade advantages of different kinds so that trade can happen uh, that is fair and non-discriminatory. And so what you see is almost inevitable where on the one hand, say, for example, the, the CBAM uh, example that David brought up um, from the EU, um, the European Commission sees the CBAM 
which seeks to level the playing field um, responding to its own emissions trading scheme, uh, they see that as implementing their nationally determined contributions. Um, and just to unpack that a little bit, in, in their view, um, they have um, an emission, uh, uh, the, the, the ETS, the emissions trading scheme in place, where carbon emissions in certain products are taxed, essentially. You have to pay for those. Um, and they see that if only they do that in the EU, but not request something similar from imported goods, that basically both the effectiveness of their measures will be undermined because EU companies might go elsewhere, um, but also um, that it would harm uh, the industry within the EU. So hence, for them to have those high levels of ambitions, they have now created the CBA. So that is, the, the on the one hand, the problem uh, there. And on the other hand, the problem is, as, as David also explained, the CBAM now requires for all countries, irrespective of where they are and what their contributions has been on, in the context of emissions or climate, to pay up the price that the EU producers are, are paying for carbon, right? So on the other hand, this is not aligned with the concept of the common but differentiated responsibilities because it's it's the same price for everyone, essentially. So I think this is the fundamental problem, and it is really difficult to um, to bridge that um, without having a global approach on how to do this, um, a global arrangement on carbon pricing on, uh, on different adjustment schemes. But even within such global arrangements, those questions about, on the one hand, creating an equal playing field and preventing leakage, and on the other hand, um, representing countries' different responsibilities and common responsibilities, that will inevitably be there. Um, if you have... Um, differentiated global carbon prices for different countries reflecting their levels of development and, and emissions, um, inevitably still a level of leakage will remain. So I think this is a really, really difficult issue generally to, uh, to address. Um, with regards to the negative implications that, uh, in this case, CBAM or other uh, unilateral measures um, that are coming up on climate uh, have with regards to the African continent, I think David already mentioned a couple of ways in which uh, that can be uh, um, addressed, um, but perhaps just to add a couple of other ways. Um, so one um, one way to address this as well would be uh, including exemptions for uh, certain countries, either, for example, the LDC, the least developed country category, or uh, establishing a de minimis threshold um, for countries whose greenhouse gas emissions do not surpass a certain percentage of global emissions, so that those countries that aren't responsible for the problem aren't also penalized uh, in a way under this uh, under this uh, regulation. So that is one option. I know that um, in the context of CBAM, exemptions were discussed, uh, in, um, uh, but it, ultimately they were not. Uh, uh, they did not push uh, come through for a number of reasons, including um, that the LDCs that would be impacted by this. Uh, most of them were not actually right now producing the goods that are covered by CBAM. So that was one of the considerations. But this could be one way um, to make things uh, or to address the negative implications. Another one is using revenues here in this case of CBAM uh, to contribute to the green transitions within uh, the countries that are impacted by it. And there is currently no requirement that that will happen. Uh, there are some uh, suggestions that there might be a way that those revenues will be used towards this purpose, uh, but it's not uh, set in stone within the regulation. Um, then other uh, 
other elements that would be important uh, are uh, technology transfer. Um, when we're talking about uh, greening uh, emissions, uh, reducing emissions, greening technology, um, it's really important to have the latest technology and many African countries don't have that access right now. Uh, so it is important that this gets facilitated either through technology transfer, uh, which can be a clause in a trade agreement or through other ways um, that this gets done. Then um, finally, it would be important to adopt uh, sui generis partnerships where there will be a scope to look at the implications of these regulations and not just CBAM, but also the EU deforestation free products regulation or, uh, you know, the eco design for sustainable products regulation or other regulations that are coming up, looking specifically at the impact of that on the country, the African country, the, the, the least developed country, um, and then developing partnerships with earmarked funding on how some of the challenges can be addressed. Um, there is already a partnership in place here uh, where the EU allocated $150 million to Mozambique um, to support the country's shift to use uh, uh, renewable energy in its aluminum production as opposed to coal that's imported from South Africa. So that could be something that can be built on. Uh, build on. But what's really critical um, in all of that is that the narrative also shifts. It cannot be the European Union or other developed countries dictating how this must be, but it has to be a partnership and it has to be a narrative that incorporates concerns uh, from both sides, um, as well as, and in particular, the knowledge also uh, from the recipient, another recipient, from the country that's going to be benefited, um, that's going to be affected by these unilateral regulations. So it's really important that the dialogue part of this uh, changes um, so that there's more room uh, for uh, uh, collaboration um, and real dialogue uh, between the African countries and, in this case, the EU. Thanks, Colette. Uh, you used uh, a lot of words like collaboration, partnership, cooperation. This all points to a very uh, intensive negotiating agenda at the bilateral and at the multilateral level. And I think you and David have both written a lot about uh, the question of negotiating capacity that uh, administrations in Africa um, have to deal with and uh, and some of the shortfalls that uh, that might affect them. Um, so staying with you, Colette, I mean, what what are some of the ways in which these um, these administrative and capacity constraints that might uh, limit the extent to which African governments are able to exercise agency in these different fora, uh, what, what are some of the ways in which these can be addressed? Yeah, thank you, Amar. That's, that, that's a key question. Um, I think capacity constraints, um, but also, and, and not just by, uh, um, in this case, the African countries, but also in the context of the interdisciplinary nature of the issues that we're looking at today, like it's no longer just trade, it's trade and environment and development. I think capacity constraints in all of these areas are really at the heart of why we might not be seeing more progress on these issues. Um, and just maybe to, to take a step back on that one, but but this siloed policymaking, uh, that's not unique to Africa. That is something that we see all over the world. It, it's something that happens in almost every government where you have a ministry for the environment and you have a separate ministry dealing with trade issues and then another one dealing with taxation or with development issues. So, so there is um, all over the world this challenge of how to merge some of these questions that inevitably require the input from more than one ministry. 
And so all over the world, governments are, are grappling with this. Um, what's interesting, um, I mean, I'll just give an example. Of course, this happens perhaps to a larger extent and within um, different developing countries, just surely because of fewer human resources that are available. Um, and this can create real problems. So I, I'll just give a quick example. I was in a, on a trip to Ghana uh, two years ago in the context of a project I was working on for the World Economic Forum on plastics and trade. And um, what I realized was that Ghana had adopted a, a pretty robust guiding plan to make uh, managing plastic waste a priority, a policy priority. Um, but at the same time, Ghana was not participating in the informal dialogue on plastic pollution at the WTO, which sought to address plastic pollution. Um, and so digging into that issue a little bit more, you find out that there is one person dealing with WTO issues coming in, and there's, of course, a whole other um, ministry dealing with environmental issues, and they don't connect. So as a result, you see this disjointed policy making. Um, so um, basically, how how does one uh, address this? And, and there's many different levels to this, but I think there's some initiatives set up, and here I'm talking about the Coalition of Trade Ministers on Climate, um, where this siloed policymaking uh, is at the heart of what it seeks to address, so that within setting priorities and agenda items on trade, that the environmental people are also involved in that discussion. So that is a good platform to see how this problem systemically could be addressed. Um, with regards to specific capacity constraints um, within the African governments, um, there the ways in which to address those, I think, will be depending on the actual context. So, uh, for example, in the context of the World Trade Organization, um, we, uh, as, as you as you noted, Amar, David, and I have done a bit of work on that, um, and uh, in the previous uh, volume of uh, how Africa trades, and. Basically, there you have the situation where you might have a mission with one person that's covering everything in the World Trade Organization, everything in the World Health Organization, uh, everything in the World Intellectual Property Organization, everything on human rights. Uh, and so that's, of course, too much for an individual to then give meaningful input on uh, at the same time. So one uh, idea that we uh, came across was that within at least the World Trade Organization, um, within the African group, different African members could follow a different issue and they could then discuss those issues amongst themselves at a later stage. So you delegate, if you will, the issues um, that you're uh, dealing with. So that would be one concrete way to do so. Um, another way uh, would be to set up um, um, a highly um, a technical uh, center, for example, the India has a center like this um, where a lot of research can be done on the implications of different agreements that are being negotiated vis-a-vis uh, -vis different uh, uh, industries or countries within Africa, and that research can then be used for the negotiators and take some of the load of their back as well. But just to, uh, to finish the thoughts on this one, I think... And going back to something that we were discussing earlier, um, this problem is even more complicated than climate and trade because it's climate, trade and development. Um, and so that adds yet another layer to the discussion, but that layer is absolutely critical and, and instrumental. Um, and here I think there is some room to explore creatively where that discussion needs to take place, the, the nexus between environment and development and trade. Um, and I, I've done some work on this with the Europe Jacques Delors Institute in Brussels. Um, and one of the ideas developed in that context is there needs to be a global triangle forum 
where those three elements receive equal weight in discussions. And that's currently not happening in the WTO. That's not happening uh, at UNFCCC or the COPs. It's not happening in UNCTAD because they all deal with a subset of issues. Um, it could fit within existing organizations. You could, for example, have a joint committee of the Committee on Trade and Environment and, say, the Committee on uh, Trade and Development in the WTO and have those come together to discuss certain issues. Um, but this institutional um, uh, uh, deficiency, in a way, uh, is something that I think requires um, uh, more research and thinking to be fully addressed. Thank you, Colette. And I think we might conclude by handing you to uh, the floor to you, David, um, just to take up some of these points. Sure. Um, and, you know, particularly this issue of the triangle between trade uh, environment and development and um, and what that implies in terms of approaches to building capacity and negotiation within the African in, yeah. uh, economies. No, absolutely. And, you know, as Colette has said, uh, you know, this problem of um, coordination uh, in governments is uh, universal and then uh, the African countries have the added challenge of capacity and, and so on. But then also, um, as a late uh, developer, if I could put it that way, uh, since African countries are late uh, developing uh, countries, um, you could also learn from experience from, from elsewhere, from good practices elsewhere. And I've been thinking a lot about um, what um, you need for um, uh, getting uh, um, uh, good outcomes from negotiations and, and even beyond negotiations, the broader policymaking process so that um, you can achieve your, your outcomes and, and given also the kind of urgency that uh, Africa needs to um, uh, to, to to put uh, to 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 place on these uh, uh, issues, uh, clarification of objectives, policy consensus, um, uh, making sure that um, in country uh, there is a clear direction as to uh, what is to be achieved and and and, and so on. Um, policy consensus can only come out of a consultative uh, process and and again in country. That's where it should begin, and um, and that's uh, uh, Im important. Uh, thirdly, what kinds of path gaps could make up for the uh, uh, your your resource gaps, your technological gaps, and and, and so on, and uh, pursue these uh, partnerships um, uh, again in the light of uh, objectives and, and the consensus that has has been achieved. Um, then I think also uh, the question of um, uh, taking an adaptive kind of approach because. Um, even with the best uh, will and all the best knowledge and all the best um, inputs into the policy making process, you might find you you know you're inevitably derailed, uh, even by um, events that are happening around you and around the world that um, uh, that uh, you you know you you're just a taker uh, uh, on on these events as we can see. Um, you know now uh, you know there's the spillover from the war in the Middle East and and all that, all sorts of unpredictable things can, can happen. So um, you need to always be able to take a step back to look at your um, uh, your objectives in the light of changing uh, circumstances and, and then how you want to adapt, uh, given uh, what's um, uh, happening uh, around you. And then also, I think, of course, um, these transboundary uh, aspects um, uh, to see how best you can leverage um, uh, you know, firstly, um, you know, you know, perhaps your regional um, integration uh, uh, objectives, uh, your multilateral objectives, your bilateral uh, partnerships and so on, all these transboundary uh, aspects, how you, can, um, uh, how you can leverage them. So I think these are the sorts of, um, uh, the sort of mix that uh, is required to get good negotiation 
negotiation outcomes as well as um, uh, be successful in achieving your policy uh, uh, objectives. Just one other point. Um, uh, coming out of the pandemic, uh, we have seen uh, you know, the inflationary spiral. We've seen the spike in interest rates, uh, the debt uh, uh, problem, and, and so on. So I think all these things have hit African policymakers, um, again, in an unexpected uh, way, not planned for, and, and, and so on. But um, I think now going into the mid um, uh, into the mid twenties, um, I think there's room for optimism, and this is how I'd like to end this conversation, at least on an optimistic uh, note, because um, you know after all the IMF is uh, pre- is uh, projecting um, uh, growth of around four uh, percent, average growth of four uh, percent in in Africa this uh, uh, this year, and I think that is something to build upon. Uh, you know, just given that now the African countries seem to be recovering. Uh, from the downturn that followed the, uh, the the pandemic and the earlier years of uh, of of this decade, so looking ahead, I want to see these sorts of um, uh, approaches uh, being ad- adopted um, because again there is an urgency. We need to get the AFCFTA uh, off the ground. Um, it has been derailed uh, multiple factors and so on, but then these areas that still need to be negotiated and completed, I think there's need to ensure that there's urgency around that. Um, uh, so, you know, I think I'm optimistic uh, for the second half of the uh, decade, but um, uh, for that optimism uh, uh, to be uh, proved right, I think um, uh, we do need to see uh, these new approaches uh, to preparation for negotiations, to policymaking, and to the sorts of outcomes that we want from uh, negotiations and policies. Thank you, David. And that optimism seems to be a good note on which to conclude. It's a rare note on which to conclude for an economist, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take that. Um, so thank you both, David and Colette, for those very insightful answers. And to our listeners, thank you for joining in. Uh, don't uh, forget to uh, review, rate and share this podcast. And we hope you'll join us soon for another episode.